about our business, and we just thank you for that. But there are other people, whether they be in our midst or friends or relatives, that their year has changed. And we're going to be having a funeral here tomorrow, as well as the Marston family. They are still mourning the loss of Cheryl Marston. So, Father, we ask that the nearness would be on these families and, and certainly a host of others that we're not aware of, that as a new year is dawning for us, a different year is dawning for them. So we just thank you for these lives that are represented. We just ask that uh, we would be a blessing to them in whatever way that we can, whether with comfort, care, or cards. We ask that we would be able to fill that gap to, to they could feel the, the hand of Christ on them. Father, I want to just thank you that we have made budget for last year, and it's such a simple thing when it occurs, and we make an announcement and we move on. But if the reverse were the case, it would be much more difficult and that is, again, another blessing from your hand, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the people that are here, for their faithfulness, for their willingness to support each other and love each other and be the hands and feet of Christ, whether it be with the shoeboxes that they're going across the, the world, around the world. Father, we ask that your hand would be on those and they would be a blessing for the recipients that, that get them. Father, we ask that you would bless your word this morning as we, we again dive into the life of Paul, and we ask that... It would be meaningful to each of us in our own way that the Holy Spirit can bless us and encourage us uh, in a way that only you can. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at the life of Paul, as I said, and we're going to be uh, ending up in Acts chapter 9. And I'll be doing a lead up so we can kind of have a, I call it a running start, so we know where we're going and how we're getting there. And the name of this of the, of the of the message this morning is suddenly without warning, and I'm not saying that in law enforcement we deal with that the most, but we certainly deal with it a lot. You can get the medical community; they're also one of those where where you could say suddenly without warning. all over the county, and it's, it's diminishing, but there's only those handful that remain, and if you want to use the expression suddenly without warning, I can remember there was a motorcycle going eastbound on Mount Baker Highway approaching the Everson Goshen Road, and it just misjudged you made a curve, you made a turn on the Everson Goshen Road, and it was just a head-on, it was dead right there, it took about that long, and it was suddenly without warning, we had another one of Smith Road and the guy.
skins and she went. Suddenly, without warning, it happens just like that. Everything changes. So we read the life of Paul and we go, yeah, yeah, this happened, that happened. Everything changed on a dime. Let me give you the story of somebody else that we are, most of us, I would say, are old enough to remember. There was once a guy by the name of Chuck Colson. We remember Chuck Colson. In the political world in the late 60s and 70s, he was known as Nick, uh, Richard Nixon Hatchet Man. Chuck Colson performed the behind-the-scenes dirty work for his friend and boss, President Nixon. And someone said in an unguarded moment, Chuck's the kind of guy who would run over his grandmother if necessary to get the job done. And after an unbelievably rapid ascent to political power and stature and reeling from the pain of a failed marriage, Colson reached a crisis point in his life where he too was enduring only misery and emptiness. And as the Watergate angle intensified, Colson descended deep into despair. He began to search for peace in his heart. And there is a article in Christianity Today that I'm going to quote from in part. It says, by late, by late 1972, even the indomitable Chuck Colson began to buckle. He was tired. Nixon was forever calling him at odd hours, summoning him to the Oval Office to talk over this or go over that. When Nixon was re-elected in November of that year, Colson resigned as special counsel to the president and longed to retreat into private life. But the web of Watergate only tightened its hold. In the book Born Again, he recounted the story of his dramatic conversion. He had been visiting the home of a friend and colleague, Tom Phillips, who had been converted at a Billy Graham crusade. Phillips had confronted Cohen with the gospel and read him a portion of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity that stuck with him. It said, a, man, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That summer evening in August of 1973, Phillips asked Chuck Colson if he would like to pray with him. Colson, aching inside but hard on the outside, awkwardly agreed. He goes, sure, yeah, I guess, I guess that'd be fine. Those were, those were his words. He felt an inner movement of the spirit but did not cough up the words of surrender. And later that night, outside in the dark, sitting in the car, the iron grip I'd kept on my emotions began to relax. Tears welled up in my eyes and suddenly I knew I had to go back into the house and pray with Tom. Only Tom had already gone to bed. And Colson parked along the roadside and hoped his friend couldn't hear him sobbing. Suddenly, without warning, a few days later, a very outspoken Christian was contacted, and his name was Senator Harold Hughes. And it was said to the senator, I found a friend who is in tremendous need, and he needs a friend, and I was wondering if you would meet with him and maybe help him along with the Lord. And when Hughes learned his friend was cold, 
and it has to be out of the countryside. And at this stage of his Christian life, Colson had never prayed aloud and, would, and did not have the finesse or the art of Christian testimonials. Hughes was understandably skeptical, and he asked Colson to tell him about his newfound faith, and in halting gestures, Nixon's one time hatchet man made his confession, and after 20 minutes, Hughes got up and he walked across the room and embraced Colson because we are brothers for life. It can happen to anybody at any time. If the Lord wants to get your attention, whether it be through an accident, through illness, through a, a Billy Graham crusade, through reading scripture, after the death of Stephen, but Jerusalem, and this is helpful when you get you kind of get in your mind the chronology of how the things occur in Scripture, it's helpful in that chronology to put this insert that, that this is now when Jerusalem and the temple begin to fade from view. They're not central anymore in the rest of Scripture like they were before. It used to be Jerusalem and the temple were just, they were front and center, not anymore. Because the gospel is going from Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, and Jerusalem was the temple, start to go in the rear view mirror. So you see, when we when you talk these last couple sermons, we see that the uh, Peter, John, and Philip they left Jerusalem, and then we have Damascus is going to be visited by Paul. He's going to get orders or at least introduction papers, at least from the chief priests, and he's going to go all the way up to the mountain. And he is going to continue persecuting the church. So you have a continuum like this. You have martyrdom, persecution, dispersion, and worldwide evangelism that extends even to today. Because we have 
And then he goes on. Talks about the death of Stephen. And it talks about followers of the way. You'll see, it would be helpful, I was going to say it later, probably be helpful now. There are three times when Paul, when uh, Saul talks about his conversion. It was Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. And there may be just a slight, just a very slight difference between those. But the reason I bring it up is it shows the consistency that Saul has when he keeps telling the story. He'll tell the story in Acts chapter 9, and it matches Acts chapter 22, and it matches Acts chapter 23. He doesn't kind of change with, the, with his audience. It's pretty much the same thing with, with one specific exception that we're going to be talking about a little bit later. But what seems to be somewhat in the back of his mind, I don't want to say haunting him, but it's in the back of his mind, is he distinctly remembers the martyr of Stephen. That was kind of like the first one. And I don't know if you've ever seen anybody get punished to that extent so that they're, they're stoned to death. It's got to be really brutal. But he remembers that. And he brings it up in the future. He's going to be, when he's talking to kings or, or other, other um, might be people of standing, he brings it up that he was one that gave approval. And it seems, kind of reading between the lines, that it really bothered him. That he was one of those that approved of Stephen's death. The second point I want, so the first point I want to make is, is he was a man of extremes. He lived with murder and threat. The very climate that he lived in was this way. And I, and I don't say that lightly. He was a man of extremes. And we know people that are extremes. They're either, they're either full tilt this way or they're full tilt that way, but they don't really live in the gray. They don't live in a, where you and I live a lot. They're either full tilt one way they want to be a hippie and they have long hair and a beard and they're off the grid and they're going to live on their own. Or they switch and they become a businessman and they're in a suit and they're in Wall Street and they're a high flyer and they're pushing hard. They're a person of extremes. And I think Paul was a person of extremes. He was either going to root out the church or he was going to have it prosper like nobody's business. It was one extreme or the other. Okay, the second part is, is he, Paul, he refers to the church as those who belonged to the way. And I think that was, that was an expression that was in John 14, about verse 5 or 6, where Jesus call, talk, talks as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It was, it was talked about there, it says, you know the way that I'm going. And Thomas says, how do we know the way? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It was the type of deal, that was the description of the church. And it seems at that particular time, the people in the church really cared about each other. And then when we fast forward to Acts 11, you'll see that the Christians are first called Christians in Antioch. So that's where chapter 9, two more chapters, and then you'll have the first time where believers are called Christians. It was at Antioch. It was Acts 11, verse 26. Uh, and then finally, the, the third one is, it, it seems that Jesus maneuvered Saul out of the hub, which would have been Jerusalem, out of the hub of where we now would call Christianity existed. He moved him out towards Damascus, and Damascus was 150 miles away. It would take six days if you went 23 miles a day. I mean, that's a bit of a walk. 23 miles a day, six days in a row, to go from Jerusalem to Damascus. So it was, it was a substantial uh, hike. But you see,
see that Jesus maneuvers Paul out of Israel. And one of the reasons they think that that is the case is because of the mission of Paul. And that is in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. It says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before three groups of people. First, to the Gentiles. Second, to kings. And third, to the people of Israel. And oh, did Paul want to carry the message of Jesus Christ to the people of Israel. And we're going to see that in the second half of chapter 9, Saul in Damascus. Let me just tell you, give you a little preview. It was a failure. They wanted nothing to do with him. We'll talk about that next week. His first mission was to go to the Gentiles. His second was to go to kings. The third was to go to the people of Israel. In fact, Paul, later when his name was became Paul, referred to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. He even said that expression. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. You go to check it, Romans 11, 13. That's where it says it. So in these first three verses, we see that Paul is a man of extremes, and he lived in a climate of murder. He uh, described the Christian church as those of the way, and he was also taken out of Jerusalem, partly because he was going to be apostle to the Gentiles, and that's where he became converted, was outside of Jerusalem. But we're going to go on. We see in this, in this next session, section, there's a story of, of how Jesus closed his hands on Saul of Tarsus. And I'm going to be reading verses 3 through 9. And it reads, Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This particular story, as I told you, is in where? Acts 9, 22, and 26. It's very helpful to have that, that, that you know that that's where it's at. Uh, why would Saul want to go to Damascus? In fact, I, as I told you earlier, that is outside of the hub of Jerusalem. So why would he not just go to Samaria or Judea? But he went to what in those days was the outermost parts of the earth. He went all the way to Damascus. And by the way, Damascus is a really, really, really old city. So how old is well, it was back with Abraham and Lot. And I checked it out. It's in, in Genesis 14. You had, you had a bunch of, of, of kings went up against Sodom, and they, they went up against, and they were victorious, and they took Lot and his belongings, and they carried him off. And then Abraham later went after him, recovered Lot and all his belongings, and brought him back. old, old city known even at the beginning of Genesis. But evidently Saul was going to be going to the outermost parts of the earth at 
spread a net and get as many Christians as he could, and probably the papers that he had were not necessarily extradition papers, but they were introductory papers from the Sanhedrin to the synagogue of Damascus to obtain their support and their cooperation. And as I, I've said before on, the, on the, the title of the message, is when we're reading this, is suddenly, without warning, things change. It was as if God said, I'm just going to get you outside of Jerusalem, and when you least expect it, I'm going to get you. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that still happens today. God suddenly steps onto the scene and gets our attention, and we may or may not have done something wrong. Uh, the most recent one to get our attention is COVID. Who would have said that COVID would have hung around this long? In fact, when we were in February of March of last year, somebody, somebody said to me, well, you know, we not, may not be having school, and, and this could go on until fall. And I'm like, this is not going to go on until fall. Now they're telling me it may go to fall or even the end of, of this year. I go, yeah, it might. Yeah, it might. So it, it's crazy how your thinking changes and you think that you've got it all, all together and hmm, maybe not so much. So when you think suddenly without warning, it could be just a simple comment on the phone that says your biopsy doesn't look good. Everything changes. There's been an accident and they didn't make it. And I've been at a lot of those. A lot. There's a sudden or an unexpected death of a loved one, and life unexpectedly jolts us with such fear that we can hardly go on. And it's probably happened to virtually every one of us. I can remember, I remember a lot of them, for whatever reason, I remember them, but it, it, I have this uncanny capacity that I can just put it in a drawer, and I shut the drawer, and it's gone. And if I ever want to look at that stuff, I just open the drawer and go, oh, yeah, I remember there's a lot of stuff in there. Then I shut the drawer again, and I don't remember. It's an odd thing that I have, but I can do that. Is I remember over here on the Badger Road, over two decades ago, we get a call, and there was a young girl, maybe nine-ish, and it was her first day picking raspberries. They didn't have raspberry pickers, okay? It was all by hand. And she's on the north side of the Badger Road, and the mom parks in the Northwood store. And she's so excited, and she, Mom, look how much I picked. And she ran across the road, and she got hit by a car, and it killed her, right in front of her mom. How do you, how do you handle that? What, what do you do with that? And maybe some of you know that person, and it's okay because I've been at the Fairway Cafe, and she came by, and we had a long talk about it. it, it it's all good. It's all good. But I looked at her, and I said, but it's still hard. She said, yeah, it is. And it was without warning. Just like that, it all changes. So another way of looking at is treasure those who are around you. Because in a moment, they can be gone. Treasure those that are around you. When Paul was, uh, when Saul was converted, he had to make a tremendous reevaluation. There was a time when Paul could have said this. I'm going to read this to you because I found it to be very instructive. 
This is what Saul could very well have said before he was converted on the Damascus Road. I made my own independent evaluation of this man called Jesus of Nazareth. I investigated into his life to see if this leader of the Nazarene cult was worth following or not. I made my own independent evaluation of what he was worth. I was not unfair. I was not unkind. I applied to him all the normal, natural standards by which any life is evaluated in any age, and I used the normal standards for determining the worth of any individual at any time. And I looked first into his ancestry and discovered there was a cloud over his birth right from the start. And as I investigated, it became quite clear that he was the illegitimate son of a faithless woman, and he had been taken in by a kind-hearted carpenter and raised as his own son. But he was an outcast from the beginning, and socially he was worth absolutely nothing. I investigated his professional standing, and I discovered that he was born of peasant stock and had attended no schools. He was raised as a simple carpenter in a village of no standing in Israel, and professionally he was worth absolutely nothing. As Saul of Tarsus, I investigated his theological and ecclesiastical background, and I found that he had sat at nobody's feet. He had been to no seminary. He had had no ecclesiastical or theological training, and in fact, he was repudiated by all of the ecclesiastical authorities of his day. He was nothing but an incorrigible street preacher and a tub-thumping rabble-rouser. And as far as his professional, ecclesiastical, and theological standing was concerned, he was worth absolutely nothing. Furthermore, I looked into his standing financially, and I found he had no bank account. He was born in a cave and laid in a borrowed manger, and that he lived in, lived in other people's homes, and he was an incorrigible scrounger. He was always borrowing things. He borrowed money to pay taxes. He borrowed his clothes from other people. He rode around on a borrowed donkey, and he died on a borrowed cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb. Financially, from the, from the standpoint of the accumulation of this world's goods, he was worth absolutely nothing. So as I investigated and applied to him the normal standards by which any life is evaluated, I discovered that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was, worth, was not worth following. But on the Damascus Road, something happened. There, in the blinding flash of a moment, I looked into the face of a man, and I saw God. I discovered that he whom I thought to be worth nothing was the Lord of everything. And I, whom I thought to be everything, was nothing. In that moment, I came. there came a tremendous reversal of all the values of my life. I'm going to end with this. In Acts chapter 26, there is a little phrase only used in Acts 26, because I told you earlier, the three accounts were essentially the same, except for one, we get into that later, or now and later. It says in, in chapter 26 of Acts, verse 14, it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goat. Yeah. 
was ignoring the teachings of Jesus. He never met Jesus up to this point. He ignored the teachings of Jesus, his miracles, his character, and his claims, together with the persistent rumors of many witnesses that had been raised from the dead. These were goads for Saul, meaning he was ignoring the obvious. He remembered Stephen. He remembered other Christians' courage in the face of death, and Saul had to have known that his thoughts, motives, and desires were not pure. They were not pure at all. So it is instructive to say to me, Maybe it's a nagging knowledge of someone who witnessed to you recently or long, long ago, and you're trying to forget what they said. Or maybe it's something that you read in the Bible, and you go, yeah, that's probably true, but I don't like that part of the Bible, so I'm just going to ignore that part, whether it be Jesus' form of honoring your spouse back and forth, and say, yeah, yeah, I, I know it says that, I know it says that, but I don't think like that part, so it's a go, it's right in front of your mind, right in front of your mind, it's right there, and you go, so you ignore that particular thing. Or maybe you know, as I've known, people that start to date, and they're dating someone that they know isn't a believer, and they go,
pockets at the same time. That's one reason. The second reason is Annas had the animal trade business locked up. This is what happened. Worshippers were required